mean, how crazy is that? To go through all of this, to then to, to be escaping and then get attacked by a dog? <laughs> I would kick the shit out of that dog. I'm sorry. Welcome to Murder Avenue. This is the Murder Avenue Podcast. This is Murder Avenue. Murder Avenue. Murder Avenue. Murder Avenue. Greetings, listeners, and welcome again to Murder Avenue, and today do we have a story for you. October 6, 1986, 22-year-old psychology student Mary Nielsen knocked on the disheveled bungalow door of 3 Morehouse Street, Willoughby, Western Australia. Earlier that day, in a spare parts yard, which is a junkyard, Mary had arranged to meet a man about some cheap car tires. His name was David Burney. Upon entering the home, Mary was held at knife point by David and his lover, Catherine. The couple gagged Mary, bound her limbs, and chained her to a bed. Catherine watched over as David repeatedly raped Mary. She asked him, what turns you on the most? They later moved Mary to Glenagle's National Park to further sexually assault and then kill her. Mary was strangled with a nylon cord. And David later claimed that stabbing was to speed up decomposition. A theory that he had read in a book somewhere. So as you can see, we're heading down another road of vicious murderers. And this time it's a couple. It's a couple. It's a man and a wife. It is a horrible love connection. You know, you never like to see that. Because for sure you're going to get some bad results. Because you want to have somebody who's going to try and keep you on an even keel. Because if both of you are crazy, who's going to stop one or the other from doing the crazy thing? No one. In fact, there's a good chance that that person's going to just simply encourage it. They're going to be excited at the bad idea. And sometimes this happens. They fall, they fall head over heels for each other. And the best thing is, is they say opposites attract. But in situations like this, you're like, if opposites attract, then how come these two are exactly the same? And they're in just as much love as people that are completely opposite. Because the hopes are, hey, maybe the wife, maybe the husband will keep the wife or the husband in line. Hey, George, we don't do that. Hey, Martha, we don't do that. You know what I mean? Like, that's just, there's, it's good to have somebody, it's like when you were a kid, and you would think before you did things about how your parents were going to react. Have the same thoughts when you're an adult, about how your spouse is going to react. <laughs> Duh. But the Bernies had buried Mary's lifeless corpse in a shallow grave, assuming that she would never be discovered. And as we know about crimes, that's never the case, or rarely the case. They considered this the perfect murder, 
Two weeks after slaying Mary, the Bernies noticed a young girl hitchhiking along the highway, and it was 15-year-old Susanna Candy. And I mean, what a name, Susanna Candy. She was actually an outstanding student, and she was actually the daughter of a top surgeon. David and Catherine beckoned her into the car, held her at knife point, and tied her hands together. They returned with, with Candy to their Willoughby House of Horrors, and the same with Mary, they gagged and chained and raped her. Now, during her abduction, Candy was forced to write letters to her parents, reassuring them that she was safe. One letter was posted from Perth, the other from Fremantle, a nearby port, but in both letters, Candy had written that she would be home soon. Catherine, after watching David rape Candy, got into bed with them and assaulted her. She knew that was what David would enjoy. Now, after this thing goes down where Catherine is getting involved, David attempted to strangle Susanna with a nylon cord. But the couple didn't expect her to fight back the way she did. And good for her. So they proceeded to force sleeping pills down Susanna's throat just to keep her calm, to sedate her. Now once asleep, David returned with the nylon cord to Candy, Susanna Candy's neck and told Catherine to prove her undying love for him by committing murder. To David's pleasure, the compliant Catherine strangled Candy while she slept. They buried Candy near the shallow grave of Mary Nielsen in the state forest. So again, good for Susanna fighting back. She really wasn't going to go out like that. And that's what you like to hear, but also you'd, you'd hope that nobody was getting killed. Of course, that's what you hope. But it's such a bizarre situation where now David said, well, she's committed. Catherine's committed to me now. She just killed for me, essentially, right? Now he's, gonna, he's obviously going to feed that. He's going to continue to utilize that, make her an accomplice. So he's not going down by himself. And then it also enforces the idea that whatever he's doing isn't as bad as it actually is because he has somebody who's essentially encouraging it, right? Catherine's there saying, yeah, I mean, I'll help you. So he thinks it's a good thing, he, he, or at least not as bad. He's like, yeah, I kill, but she's fine with it, so I don't feel as bad about it when I do it. When recalling Susanna Candy's murder from prison, Catherine responded with a chilling quote saying, I was prepared to follow him to the end of the earth and do anything to see that his desires were satisfied. Adding, Susanna was a female, and females hurt and destroy males. Catherine Harrison met David Burney at the tender age of 12, and by 14, the pair were romantically involved. So already, you can, you can see this lady out of her mind, okay? She was already 100% committed to this guy, Murdering was just adding more emphasis to that, helping him realize it. It's a disgusting thing, for sure. And then she has these things in her head, like he also had to have been brainwashing her from the age of 12 and, and forward, making her believe that females weren't good. And she was a female, so she was like a self-loathing female. It's weird. But they're out there, okay? They exist. We see it here. 
Now their relationship was very temptuous, and despite Catherine's father's best efforts, David often led young Catherine astray. Now, during her adolescence, Catherine also spent many different times in prison, and it was a welcome break from David. Meanwhile, David became a paraphiliac, which is simply, he's obsessed with sex and addicted to pornography. He even went so far as to break into the home of an elderly woman while naked, aside from stockings over his head. And that was his first attempt at rape. David married young. He was in his early, tw he was in his early 20s when he had one daughter with his wife called Tanya. But the star-crossed lovers always found their way back to each other. And in 1985, Kath Catherine left her husband and six children to live with David. So that right there is another telltale sign of her weird spell that she's under from this guy. Okay, does he have the magic stick? I don't know. He must. I, I feel like everyone has their own specific magic stick, and maybe she, she knew that he had hers. <laughs> maybe that's what it is. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense. Because she went on to have a relationship with somebody so far as to make six kids. So, and then willing to just be like, all right, see ya. You know, good luck with the kids there, Brian. I got to go with uh, David. You know, it's just <laughs> success. You know, I can already tell he's a great guy. We're going to just do well. But she did end up changing her name to Catherine Burney. And as Catherine Burney, she flourished into her disturbing role within their vicious partnership, overseeing the picking and choosing of the of their next textbook victims. When she spotted their newest target, she would turn to David and say, I have the munchies. Sadly, this horrific practice sealed the fate of the next victim, who was 31-year-old bar manager Noeline Patterson. On November 1st, the Burneys found Noeline standing by her car on the Canning Highway, where she had run out of fuel after leaving work, and under the guise of a helpful couple, they gestured Noeline to their car before taking off with her at knife point. So this lonely woman needs a little help, and these two people who seem like regular people, especially back, hit, back in the 80s, the way that they look, they look like everybody else in the 80s, and maybe that was the issue, it's like mustaches were so much more common on people then. You couldn't tell one killer from a, you know, a, a guy who might read you a, a psalm at a, at a church. But, um, you know, she needs gas and she gets picked up thinking that all is well. She's going to get to go home. Her car is going to be fine. Everything is good. And little does she know, wasn't even close. So the Bernies end up heading back to their bungalow, which, you know, call it a house. They head back to their bungalow on the Morehouse Street, and Noeline was gag-chained up and raped. Allegedly, the pair had planned to murder and dispose of Noeline on the night of her abduction, but David had other ideas. Noeline, in an act of self-preservation, tried to please David. She tried to go along with everything that he made her do, okay? And at, her requ at his request, she called her friends and told them she was safe and was staying with people she knew. So this is the second time that he had his victims 
call people that they knew so they didn't come looking. She even asked them to collect her broken down vehicle. So it seems like over the time, this relationship between David and Noeline was making Catherine jealous because Noeline was beautiful. She was smart. She was successful. She was even elegant. And she couldn't be satisfied. Catherine wouldn't be satisfied by Noeline. And Catherine grew to hate Noeline because David really enjoyed her being around. And three days of this go on, and in a fit of jealousy, Catherine presented David with an ultimatum. He either killed Noeline or she would kill herself. Now, reciprocating Catherine's earlier de uh, devotion, David swiftly forced an overdose of sleeping pills down Noeline's throat. And then he strangled her as she slept. The couple took Noeline's corpse, wearing only her underpants, to their growing forest of bodies. Catherine took great pleasure in kicking and throwing dirt on Noeline's face. Her bloodlust had returned. So like I said, the, the whole thing with this, this being a team, a unit, they're encouraging each other. There is no person telling them, hey man, fucking stop. What's going on? What is this? How did it come so far? Right? So we have to sit here and under, try to understand and figure out exactly why there was no person to say, hey, you know, this is no good. But the other thing that you're learning is they are killing these women now where they don't have any ability to fight back okay noeline did the best trying to pretend as if she was into the whole situation until obviously she could try to make an escape which never took place because she was drugged obviously that's because of how it went with susanna candy when they tried to do what they did to mary with her she fought back and they had a problem they had an issue. So now they're just they're going and ha and doing the same thing with new victims but not they're they're having almost zero chance of survival. They can't do anything to survive. I mean, to be drugged how 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 do you fight back if you're knocked out? You're being killed in your sleep. Involuntary sleep at that. You don't even want to be asleep. You didn't nod off. You're not narcoleptic. You just happen to be drugged forcefully and then never, ever wake up again from it. It's twisted. Very, very twisted. But four days later, the couple were looking for another victim. They were ready to terrorize. And a woman by the name of Denise Brown, who was 21 years old, became the next victim. The Bernies approached Denise as she waited for the bus on Sterling Highway. They offered her a ride. So rule number one in life, just don't take rides from strangers at all don't give rides to strangers even i mean every situation that i can think of where somebody asked me if asked me for a ride when i was at a gas station or something like this the guy looked scary you know terrifying like nah man uh nah what no i'm not taking you anywhere have fun walking there joe the fuck away from my window <laughs> but after abducting denise at knife point again the couple continued their pattern of sickening torture back at the Morehouse Street home. Denise was bound, raped, and the following afternoon, the couple drove Denise into a secluded forest in the Wanneroo, you know, have a better name, 
uh, plant Pine Plantation. And as the couple awaited sundown, David continued to rape Denise in the car whilst Cast Catherine watched. Uh, after darkness fell, they took Denise from the vehicle. David assaulted her again, and they thrust the knife into her neck. Convinced Denise was dead, they dug a shallow grave and discarded her battered corpse. But to their shock, Denise sat back up. She was still alive. It took David two full force blows to, Denise head, to Denise's head with an axe before she died. Undeterred, he covered her body with dirt, and the couple left the scene. Catherine, however, was shaken by Denise's brutal murder, and in a later interview was quoted to have said, I think I must have come to a decision that sooner or later there had to be an end to the rampage. Must be sooner or later. Um, although complicit in the sexual assault, strangling, and stabbing, Catherine admitted she couldn't go through with David's growing ruthlessness. Which, obviously, that's weird. It seems weird for you to say that. You can't go on with it, but yet you participated in it. You're helping. In fact, you're helping these victims be more willing to just get in the car. Because, trust me, through the history of true crimes, we've all, we all have heard about people being picked up. Okay? And the one thing that makes it easier for them to be picked up is when there's a female. There's a sense of safety. You're like, no way, is the, are both of these people killers? No way. And she's here, so if he's a killer, he's not working today. But she added, uh, quoting, I had great fear that I would have to look at another killing like that of Denise Brown, the girl he murdered with the axe. Would Catherine's fears contribute to the sequence of events that unfolded with their final victim? Because on the 10th of November, 1986, a 17-year-old girl ran up to a man outside a vacuum cleaner shop. She was crying, help, I've been raped. Please take me inside and call the police. She was barefoot, wearing nothing more than black leggings and a singlet. And this person is quoting, saying, If a woman comes here and says, I have had a fight with her and I'm her, her daughter, don't believe her, I've been raped. The Good Samaritan drove the distraught teenager to the local police station. The newly appointed constable, Lauren, Laura Hancock, discovered the girl was Kate Moore. And she had escaped a Bernie attack. One day earlier, Kate Moore had, accept had accepted a ride home from the Bernies after a night out with friends in Perth. But little did she know, the odd couple, who seemed to be friendly, were four bodies into a month-long murder spree. The couple drove Kate just outside of their house, outside of her house, and Kate tried to leave the car. She noticed that there were no handles on the door to get out. I mean, that's a horrible thing to, uh, to hear that or to see that once you're at your house is so weird because you're like, okay, well, this is a weird thing. I should have noticed as soon as I got in the car, there weren't any handles on the inside. But then again, you are home. So you're like, okay, well, I, I can still get out, right? Like they brought me all the way here. There's obviously nothing that strange going on. There can't be. But David brandished a butcher's knife from his... Uh, boots and he held it to her throat and they proceeded to drive on back at the Morehouse property the Bernie subjected Kate to hours of mental torture and thankfully Kate did survive but I have to wonder what this mental torture was they're just making fun of her 
Just like, ah, you're so bad at math. You're, do you even know how to brush your hair? Look at you. Your hair is ridiculous. I don't know. <laughs> what was the mental torture? But they did make her dance for them to Dire Straits, Romeo and Juliet. So yeah, that would have been a really weird song to see anybody dance to. I mean, if there's anything more strange than slow dancing with another person, it's slow dancing by yourself. <laughs> I mean, for sure. Anybody who's who's watching somebody dance alone to, to slow music, you're looking at it crazy. That's a crazy person. But Kate asked them if they were going to kill her or rape her, and they callously replied, we're only going to rape you if you're good. What the... What? Not long after midnight, Catherine watched over as David assaulted Kate. Afterwards, Kate slept in Bernie's bed, handcuffed by foot to David. During the night, she convinced the couple to allow her to write goodbye letters to her family. Now, this is smart because they did have that pattern of allowing people to contact their family in some form. So she she might not have known that, but she certainly leaned into something that they were down for already doing to other victims. Now, at some point during the night, Kate started screaming in distress, and that's when David said that the sleeping arrangements will be changed. So he moved her to the master bedroom where the rapes continued. Now, following the assaults, he offered Kate sleeping pills, which she pretended to swallow and hid under the mattress. And it is weird because... the. They forced the other girls to take the sleeping pills. They made sure it happened. Why did they just willy-nilly give them to her and she could do what she wanted with them? They didn't pay enough attention to see that she didn't take them. Now, in the morning, Kate was forced to ring her mother to assure that she was okay. So, again, letting them contact the family, right? So she, I mean, this probably benefited her knowing that they were allowing this to take place because she could do something about I don't know. If it was me and I was able to make a phone call regardless of what the end result was going to be, I'm definitely going to let you know that, hey, things aren't good. Help me. This isn't the movies, you know. But she did. Kate tried to raise an alarm. She told her mother that she had been too drunk to come home, and they, they uh, knowing that they were unaware of her drinking, she hoped that, they, that her parents would be furious and come to find her seeing through the lie of staying with a friend. But sadly, they didn't. So David left for work, and Kate's uh, survival instinct kicked in. She decided she had a 50-50 chance of life or death. Catherine returned to Kate in her room, unsecured, and having been distracted by drug dealers knocking on the front door, Kate saw her chance to escape. She broke the lock off the nearest window and fled the Morehouse hellhole. She went on to frantically knock on neighbors' doors, but nobody answered. Kate jumped a garden gate, and after su sustaining an attack from a dog, she noticed a vacuum shop. I mean, how crazy is that? To go through all of this, and to then to, to be escaping, and then get attacked by a dog? <laughs> I would kick the shit out of that dog. I'm sorry. I'd be, <laughs> I'd be so pissed. I'm like, bro, I almost just died, and you're going to fucking bite me now? Like, get out of here, dude. I'm kicking you to the moon. You're going to attack me after I've been dealing with hours of mental torture and days of 
God knows what else, rape, and I barely survived. You're going to bite me, dude? You can't tell that I'm in distress? Get out of here. You're going to bite me for running in your yard? This isn't even your yard. You're a dog. <laughs> but Kate Moore was finally safe, finding the vacuum shop. She eventually gets to the police station where she details the horrific abuse after the abduction. Several police were initially skeptical of her claims. However, the constable that we priorly mentioned, Laura Hancock, believed her. The police were already aware of the possible serial killer at large. All the victims shared the same significant detail. They calmly contacted their loved ones before never being heard from again. But Catherine denied ever meeting Kate. David insisted she had visited for consensual sex. But Kate, however, had a lot of evidence to contradict the lovers' conflicting stories. Their address and telephone number. David's real name, not the alias he had told her. And this was a detail that she had noticed on a prescription bottle. So at least she was wise enough to take this information. I think she fully believed that she was going to survive. So obviously, these things that they were so used to doing in their textbook pattern, they slipped up for a reason with this Kate. With the sleeping pills, with not actually making her take them. There's just so many different things that led to, that helped Kate, right? That helped her survive. Now lastly, there was a drawing that she had hidden as proof of her presence in the house. So at some point, she had her free hands and she colored a picture with a purpose, okay? She's like, you're going to put this on the fridge and you're going to like it. Now, the lead detective urged David to confess so that the police could find the other bodies before nightfall. Now, to, to the detective's shock, David revealed the existence of four graves. Now, because Kate was so smart and so brave, the Bernie's five-week reign of terror had ended. Although their sadistic binge was over, the couple's sick relationship continued to play out within their confessions and during the trial. Two days later, November 12, 1986, David John Burney and Catherine Margaret Burney faced charges on four counts of murder at Fremantle Magistrates Court. David Burney entered the court handcuffed to, to a police officer wearing a faded pair of overalls with jogging bottoms and socks. Catherine also handcuffed uh, to an officer. She stood barefoot in denim jeans and a brown jacket. I mean, if I'll be honest... These people look dumb as a box of rocks. Truly. They don't look like smart people at all. They look like... I, I don't know. Um, I, it's hard to even really explain. You'll have to look at the photos. Look up the Bernies. And yeah, it is... I, they look... I don't know. They don't look like killers, but they also don't look like people that could help you in any way. They look more like people that need help. Because both of them walking into court were emotionless. Bail was refused. The couple had no legal representation, no plea, and Catherine asked the court that she wanted to be remanded for 8 to 30 days before her next appearance. And she looked to David and said, I'll go when he goes. The following year, on the 10th of February, so this, this lady is fully invested in this guy, well into this whole shit. The following year, on the 10th of February, the Bernies stood trial at Perth Supreme Court. Their prison van 
was met with the cheers of a huge crowd saying, hang the bastards. A reporter vividly remembers the harrowing scenes of their court appearance. Catherine Burney fought, and he's quoted as saying, Catherine Burney fought against the guarding police officers and refused to allow any of them to touch her. She looks like a cold woman, for sure. He continued with, she screamed and spat words at them until she reached that dock and spotted her beloved David. Now, Bill further recalls Catherine's disturbing public displays of affection as the charges of abduction, rape, torture, and murder were read out against David. Catherine Burney, and this is quote, uh, Catherine Burney bent forward, stretched out her right hand, and gently stroked the ball of David Burney's thumb behind his back. A trembling David pled guilty to four count. I mean, that's just weird. I don't even know how, like, she just stroked his thumb. Uh, I don't know. It's so weird. What were the, I mean, she had six kids, like, from someone else. It's crazy. Uh, David pled guilty to the four counts of murder and one count of abduction and rape. I mean, that was all abduction and rape. He received the maximum sentence, life imprisonment, sparing the victim's family of a harrowing trial. He told, he told detectives, that's the least that I could do. That after his sentence was passed, he left the court, blowing a kiss to the angry crowd. So fucking piece of shit, you know? Garbage. He looks like a little guy, too. Like, a, just got the small man complex. <clears throat> Catherine entered no plea. Her barrister was awaiting a psychiatric report to determine her ability to stand trial. She returned a month later after being declared sane enough to go on trial. And the court detailed their 35-day killing spree. The couple held hands, smiling and whispering to each other. And while in prison, the couple shared over 2,600 letters. Now, 54 years old, David Burney was found dead in his cell. October 7, 2005, police officers discovered him hanging from an air vent. Catherine was not allowed to attend his funeral. So goodbye. Goodbye, David. I mean, waited way too long for that. Catherine was not allowed to attend his funeral, which obviously would have made her upset. But David used the length of cord to commit suicide. His struggle with depression combined with his lack of medication attributed to his death. Now, Catherine, however, remains in prison. All applications for parole have been rejected. The legacy of the this prolific serial killer couple is unending. Kate Moore continues to campaign for tougher restrictions on convict parole applications. So she's trying to keep people in prison. Catherine's youngest son calls for her execution. So people who are even related to the, you know, she abandoned her kids, I would imagine. You don't hear anything about them being involved with David and Catherine's reign for 35 days, right? And the one son is saying, yeah, get rid of her. Uh, Tanya, uh, David's only daughter, has never married and vows to never have children. And she says that she doesn't want to spawn another David. I mean, that's so crazy. Just a crazy, crazy tale. And I do always hope you guys enjoy it. Thank you so much. Don't forget, you can hit that Patreon and get this episode very early. Not very early, but earlier. <laughs> earlier for sure. And you can help support the podcast that you love. Thank you guys so much. This has been Murder Avenue. Until next time. Hey. 
Hey guys, if you enjoyed that show, please subscribe wherever you listen. Be sure to share it on social media. Tell a friend, tell a family member, tell a distant family member, especially if you don't like it. If you don't like it and you tell the family member that you don't like, it's a win-win for you. Also, exclusive content and early access to all of these podcast episodes are at patreon.com slash podculture. The link for that is in the episode description. You can get early access as well as access to things that aren't put out there, as well as simply supporting the podcast that you love. Thank you so much once again for tuning in to Murder Avenue. See you next time.